Heavenly Father, please open up the mouth of your servants this evening, wherever they may be, as they proclaim your holy word. Open up the mouth of your servant here. Give wisdom and words and your grace. Lord, we all need your Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, that you'll be with your people as they gather together in every place tonight. Open up their hearts to hear and receive your truth. Be nourished and built up in the most holy faith of Jesus Christ. We pray that for those of us gathered here tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our New Testament reading is Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, verses 19 through 25. I, I would argue in one sense that this may be maybe the climactic place in Hebrews where everything he's been saying just comes to a head and to an exhortation. You know, he says, um, and this is uh, verse nine, nine, beginning at verse 19, um, he's going to say, uh, verse 22, let us. Uh, verse uh, 23, let us. And verse 24, let us. Um, I had a professor that said some of the old timers used to talk about the lettuce uh, patches in the epistle to the Hebrews. Let us, let us. And uh, I've always remembered that. But here, uh, one of the, you know, we're dealing with prayer. Uh, we're dealing with really concentrating on the truth, which would be in these new covenant times, hearing the word expounded, and we're concentrating on gathering together. So really the main means of grace are what he's exhorting us to based on all his argument in regard to Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he has accomplished. So verse 19, Therefore, brethren, having boldness, To enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching. And then going over to our New Test, our Old Testament reading, and our preaching text for tonight, Psalm 122. Psalm 122. And continuing to read the word of God. And again, this is a song of ascents. This is one of the psalms they would sing as they literally went up uh, the hill of Mount Zion uh, to the temple at uh, the three annual feasts that required all the adult men at least uh, during the uh, ceremonial period uh, to come together uh, as a nation to worship. A song of ascents of David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact together, where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to the testimony of Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. 
For thrones are set there for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Peace be within your walls, prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brethren and companions, I will now say to you, Peace be within you. Because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. This ends the reading of God's holy word. This is a psalm of David. That's interesting because when he opens by saying, I was glad when they said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. Remember, he had one period especially, and not long after he began to, after he had come to uh, uh, public recognition, after he had been anointed king, but was I'm not, I'm, yes, anointed king, but not yet crowned king, when um, for some length of time he was unable to come up. Uh, to the house of the Lord without being in great physical danger because of King Saul. And so you, you just think of David, this man uh, who had had an enforced time of being away from you know, the, the uh, national gathering saying, uh, I was glad when they said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. He had really missed that. And uh, then also the fact this is a, a song of a sense and just picture this, you're singing, you know, I was glad when they said, let us go up to the house of the Lord, while you're going up to the house of the Lord. So appropriate, wasn't it? It's a beautiful picture there. It is a psalm about the church because I'm convinced in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, the church is the spiritual Israel. It is the heavenly Jerusalem, the spiritual Mount Zion. The Old Testament language that spoke of Old Testament worship and the Old Testament theocratic kingdom is many times used in regard to the New Testament church in the New Testament. Sometimes people don't catch that. Uh, If you're not familiar enough with your Old Testament, you may not catch the many references to the church in the New Covenant under Old Testament language and titles. And um, the church fulfills... Uh, the uh, spiritual intent in regard to a theocratic nation. We are not an earthly theocracy, but we are a spiritual theocracy. We are the nation of Israel. Christians in the New Testament are those who are Jews inward, even though many of them are not Jews outwardly speaking. And... um, this is part of what we call covenant uh, theology. Uh, and it is the historic position of uh, the uh, Reformed churches. I meant to, if, if this kind of came up quickly, me being here to preach tonight. Uh, and if I'd been on the ball more this week, I would have sent to uh, Nathan or to Bill um, a study I have that I always included in my bulletin when I preached uh, occasionally uh, that is Israel equals the church in the new covenant or the church equals the true Israel in the new covenant. And in that, that study, one of my main, some of my main points are is that in the New Testament, Christians are true Jews. You know, who's a true Jew, says Paul? Well, uh, they put no confidence in the flesh and they worship God in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's the true Jew. Um, secondly, in the New Testament, once the cross and resurrection's taken place and the day of Pentecost, 
There are only two categories, non-Christians and Christians. Unbelieving Jews, that is, Jews that don't believe in the Messiah, are no longer viewed as Israel. Actually, very strong language is used. Like, you know, that they're really a synagogue of Satan, uh, is said at one point. And um, especially those were non-Christian Jews persecuting Christian Jews. And uh, there is, there's no longer the distinction Jew and Gentile. The cross takes that distinction away. There's just those who are in Christ and those who aren't. So, again, the church is the new Israel of God. Uh, the church fulfills what is meant by Jerusalem, Zion, the temple, Israel, God's kingdom. There are studies, there are texts I could take you to to demonstrate all of that. And there are other parallelisms uh, we have also. Um, the historic reform position is that there's one people of God, but two stages. You know, there's that stage one is anticipation, and stage two is the fulfillment has come. And so the difference is not that there are two different ways of salvation and, and um, you know, that the, the Jews are, one, are an earthly people of God and the Christians are a spiritual people of God. Those categories have been suggested, but um, actually more recently in church history, the last 150, 200 years. But the, uh, I believe the New Testament sees this as one people, two stages, and for that, Hebrews 11, verse 40, God having provided something better for us, us in the new covenants, the context, that they, the true believers in the Old Testament, should not be made perfect apart from us. That's picturing one church, but two stages. And obviously we have more because we live at the time of fulfillment, and they lived in anticipation, but it's the same Savior. They're looking ahead, and we're looking back. So um, I'm going to look at each verse in light of David's time, David's setting, but I'll proceed then to apply this to us in the New Covenant. So here's what I believe would be basically what we should see from this song. That true Christians love or should love the church. And by that I don't mean just, just the church in what we call the uh, invisible, universal, you know, the, the concept of the church, you know, all the elect as the invisible church. I mean the concrete local congregation or fellow congregate, sister congregations in a given area, you know, the concrete, real flesh and blood people that are still here on earth with us. We should love the church. We should love the church viewed both universally invisibly but we should view love the church viewed locally and visibly and i had preached on this text uh in the midst of covid19 at my my charge in merrimack new hampshire before i retired about a year or so before i retired and uh here's what i had in my notes just to give you an idea of of how this seemed to fit to me in this weird time we were in Brothers and sisters, when the COVID-19 threat and restrictions are over, all of you should be seen in actual and personal attendance again, except those who are physically unable to attend, uh, such as the very elderly and those with serious afflictions. Um, you know, one of the concerns we had as uh, a session of elders at Merrimack was we were afraid some of the people would get used 
to joining in by the internet. We're very thankful that, you know, I, I, I listen to my son preach Sunday nights after you've heard him that day. Uh, when I get back from preaching or when I get back from evening service, we come home and while we eat a snack, we put our son up on line and we get to listen to him preach too. Um, you know, I'm thankful for that. I, I was in Illinois, Ann and I were in Illinois, and one of our best friends died in New Hampshire, and we were able to join in on the service to some degree because it was broadcast live on the internet. Very thankful for that, but we were afraid there were going to be those who wouldn't see that there is a difference between viewing it from the distance and seeing each, one, each other in person that it's important we, not, we don't become more distant, but that we see the flesh and blood connection we have and that we're to have as believers together. And I believe this psalm is one of the many evidences of, of that need uh, as far as the attitude of the true believers. So first, verses 1 and 2, the joy of gathering Christ church for public worship. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Remember, their Old Testament house would be that temple, and it's, on, it's in the city of Jerusalem on that hill called Mount Zion. And uh, here's the question, are you glad when they say to you, let us go into the house of Jehovah God? Are you glad? King David says he's glad. He's filled with joy at the prospect of gathering with God's people to worship the great I Am. And uh, the word Lord, whenever it's all in capital letters, that's Yahweh or Jehovah, it's, it's God is the great I Am, the eternal God who never changes and is in covenant with his people by grace. And we, we should always be glad to contemplate coming and meeting with him as we come and meet with one another. Several places David makes it clear that one of his worst trials was when he was in that position I spoke of earlier, when he was physically unable to gather with God's people for public worship. So I think a, an important question is, do you have joy in the Lord as you gather with the people of the Lord in the public worship of the Lord? Do you have joy in the Lord? If not, is there a problem in your walk with God? And as far as your faith in God's truth and your desire for his righteousness, I think as a normal rule, the Bible would indicate, yes, there would be a problem if we, don't, if we aren't glad when we contemplate gathering with God's people. I did think, and of course it was close to home this week, I did think of a time um, when it might be difficult to be glad, and that's when you're especially a young mother and you've got some little ones and uh, it's not that you don't want to be with God's people. Actually, you, your heart craves that. But it can also be an incredible amount of work uh, to, uh, to go through worship. But that's not really, that's not really an exception to the rule. You're, as I said, your heart still wants to be there. You still, actually, sometimes that's, I remember for Ian, that could really make a big difference on, on helping her. Even though it was a lot of work, her husband was in the pulpit and I couldn't help her with the kids, you know, out there. But just that little bit of interaction with the people in the church sometimes made a lot of difference for her. And I can remember that when our kids were little. Uh, note here also, by the way, the idea of a call to worship. I was glad, what, when they said, 
let us go into the house of the Lord. This whole idea that we, the pastor calls us to come together to worship. Are you glad to stand to be in the gathered church for worship? Verse 2. David rejoices that the feet of God's people stand within the gates of Jerusalem. That is, they, they are Jehovah's people gathered to worship him according to his revealed word. We're commanded to gather together to worship the Lord each Lord's day. In Psalm 92, the inscription uh, that go, is as old as any of our copies of ancient copies of Psalm 92 uh, says that this is for the Sabbath day. And then in verse 2, it talks about worshiping God together morning and e- evening. And for some of us, that suggests to us that, you know, the day is supposed to be set apart for the Lord. I, I think I, um, I'm preaching in different places, so I can't remember what I've said to you or not said to you. <laughs> but um, Stephen Mishaw, I don't know if you know Stephen or not, but he was an assistant I had at Merrimack, and now he pastors a OPC church up in Maine. But he used to mention Psalm 92, and he talked about, in verse 2 there, about morning and evening, as the, the two services we have are the bookends of the Lord's Day. The bookends of the Lord's Day. You know, that's set apart, you know, this time that we worship the Lord together. Do you have joy in knowing that you are one of the Lord's people by the grace of Jesus Christ alone? Do you have joy in knowing that as you gather to worship Him at the church, you're standing in the midst of, of a redeemed people? And you are part of his eternal kingdom. Now, I grew up in a tradition that for fear of people thinking they were made Christians by going to church, they got so individualistic in how they approached it. Sometimes they downplayed the church. And then as years went by, some of the young people quit going to church and they wondered why. You know, there's, you've got to watch you know, the trajectory of what you're saying if people are really taking in what you mean. It was good to emphasize that each one of us needs to have personal faith in Christ. But in the both Old and New Testament, that faith is, in the final analysis, exercised in the midst of other believers. You know, we express that faith, especially when we gather together and confess him together. The joy of gathering with Christ's church for public worship, verses 1 and 2. The purposes of Christ's gathered church. And this is not an exhaustive list. But here's a good summary of, of three of the main reasons we gather together uh, as the church. And first purpose, uh, verse 3 in the first part of verse 4, Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact together where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to the testimony of Israel. Uh, the first purpose he mentions here is the gathering of the saints is to manifest the unity and oneness of of God's people in Jesus Christ. I think you'll find that with the average non-Christian, your witness is more powerful if, if it comes from within the context of being a church member and of actually you know, concretely being united with the people of Christ and manifesting that unity. Remember Jesus in his high priestly prayer says that People would be able to to believe it would, it would make it more easy to believe the love of God as they in Christ as they saw our love for one another worked out in very practical ways that they would believe that Jesus had been sent by the Father because of our unity.
together, which I believe is a spiritual unity especially, but it, it has to be seen. This whole idea of church membership in, in a particular local congregation, see, that makes it visible, doesn't it? That, that makes it something concrete. And, that, uh, and that's important for us. My commitment is always deepened by actual church membership because now I've actually gone on public stands saying I'm committed to this group of people. Uh, in the OPC, and this is true in the PCA as well, when we unite with the church, we have membership vows that we promise that we do believe the gospel and we do love one another and we'll work at loving one another. And see, we've gone on record. You know, we've that, that always makes a difference, doesn't it? For David's day, in the Old Covenant, the unity and oneness of the twelve tribes was seen in the common faith and the theocracy by their attendance upon the three annual feasts. Here's something to think about. Whenever there's been a revival, I don't mean revivalism, but a true Holy Spirit revival in the history of the church, uh, it has always been seen in a greater enthusiasm for the church gathering together, hearing God's word and praising him together. And this is seen even in the Old Testament. Uh, What do we have happening in in the time of David and Hezekiah and Josiah, you know, two of the most godly kings of the line of David? What's one of the things we're told that's emphasized? Well, the gathering again for the three annual feast when all the men were to come together right you remember um, they come together and uh, I think it's in Josiah's day uh, not all the priests were sanctified like they should have been this had come about from the Lord suddenly and some of the Levites had to do a little bit more than they normally did to assist the priest because they had been they had done a better job staying faithful and were were ceremonially sanctified to, to do it but the whole thing had come together, and here was this Israel gathering together. Um, some, you know, there, there's one of, is it, I think in Josiah's day, which is always interesting because it's almost the end of Old Testament history with Josiah. Uh, they kept the Feast of Tabernacles, and it said that had not been done on that level, I think, since the days of Samuel, which is before King Saul and before King David. I mean, just. That's how far back it had gone. That's what happens in a revival. There's, the church doesn't, in a true revival, Christ's church doesn't become less important. It, becomes, it comes back to its place of prominence for uh, God's people. And we see that throughout church history. What we're looking at, again, is what is seen and what is visible. The visible church gathering is the visible manifestation of, before each other and before the unsaved world of our love for Christ and for each other and of our love for and submission to his word together which commands us, God's word commands us to gather on each Lord's day, to gather together, not forsake the assembly together, together Hebrews 10, 25. The Christian faith is not to be a secret faith, a hidden faith, but a faith that testifies to God's truth and particularly to the Lord Jesus Christ and his redemptive church that creates his redemptive work that creates the church a church that is visible and to which new christians are to unite openly to confess christ before men hebrews 10:32 we must confess christ before men 
I'll never forget this experience I had. Um, I was with some other boys. I wasn't yet in junior high, I remember. And uh, I said something I shouldn't have said as a Christian. And the non-Christian boy next door goes, how can you say that? You're a Christian. I said, how did you know I'm a Christian? He goes, well, your family goes to church every Sunday morning. Well, I didn't think any of them knew we went to church Sunday morning. It looked like they were all still asleep. No, they, they did notice. And I, as I got older, I realized the whole block knew who went to church and who didn't. See, even the, the, the non-Christians even understood that if this was going to be a real faith, there had to be a commitment. Uh, and this is part of what's involved in being glad to go to the house of the Lord, our unity we have together. You know, the, the devil tries to take the disagreements Christians have had and blows that up as the whole thing. When in reality, many of us go long periods of our life and just enjoy sweet fellowship with other believers. And when we do disagree, it's like a disagreement often in a, in a nuclear family where, you know, I'd get into a spat with one of my brothers, but don't anybody else try to get into a fight with them. Because I'd side with my brother, you know. I just we really did have a unity there, even at times we had our little disagreements. And when we gathered to worship, we put a lie to Satan's lie that there isn't a true love of Christ. And then uh, second purpose here, and this again is in verse four, where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, uh, to the testimony of Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Uh, the purpose is to hear and respond to God's revealed word. The tribes go up to the testimony of Israel. Now this word testimony, the Hebrew word we translate testimony, could refer to the law itself, the Pentateuch, as revealed through Moses. Uh, testimony is one of the words used for the book of the Lord. Or the testimony, just used in that way by itself, the testimony, can refer to the Ark of the Covenant in the temple which for us would be the gospel, the cross of Jesus Christ. That's our uh, Ark of the Covenant. The preaching of the gospel publicly, the teaching of God's word to God's people uh, would be our testimony today, the Bible, and particularly the Bible as far as public worship. Israel gathered, spiritual Israel, the church, engaged in the preaching of the gospel and the teaching of the whole counsel of God. It is by the foolishness of preaching that that God is saving those in whom he works faith in Christ, 1 Corinthians 1, by which he works faith in us by regenerating us through the Holy Spirit using the preached gospel. 1 Peter 1, 1 John, Romans 10, all throughout the New Testament we find that emphasis. When we gather together, we give public testimony to who we are and what we are together in Jesus Christ. And when we gather together, we hear God's testimony to us in his holy scriptures expounded and received and some of you have read enough in reformed literature and reformed uh, confessional creeds and history to know that one of the first things we had to do at the reformation was say what makes a true church then you see that that question had to be asked and answered what what was wrong with the roman catholic church why why are we having problems and why have we formed these other unions? And what, what is a church? 
And, uh, of course, the preaching of the gospel and the teaching of God's word was the first thing they put on the list. If God's word's not being proclaimed, at the very least, there's a serious, serious defect there, if it's even still a church at all. And then also, uh, the sacraments, the two sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, Christ had commanded that for his people. And then... Uh, church discipline or church government membership. In other words, the whole idea of a gathering that has a concrete form to it. The purpose here is to come and hear God's word as well as to express our unity. And of course, our unity uh, is a unity we have around the word of God. And then... um, Also, at the end of verse 4, then, um, a purpose we have to give thanks to the name of the Lord. To praise God corporately as the proper and biblical response to his mercies toward us as his people. Some within our churches have grown up in more of a contemporary service that was more man-centered. Uh, the way they expressed it, and I date myself here back when I was studying for the ministry, it was more horizontal and not a vertical uh, focus. And that becomes very unsatisfying, to say the least. You know, if, if we're, we're, we need each other, but we don't find our solution just in each other, we gather together to look to the solution who is not us but the living God in Christ. And so it's, it, it's an upward focus for us. We come up together to God's word so that we can give thanks to the name of Jehovah God, the great I Am. That we might praise the one true God, the self-existent, eternal, unchangeable God of the covenant of grace, the true and living God. The particular praise the psalmist is thinking of here is thanksgiving. Praising God for who he is and what he is and what he's shown himself to be in his word and for what he has done for us in his grace. I was part of the Jesus movement when I was a young teenager. And one of the things, I went off to a a serious Christian college to study for the ministry and they helped me a lot and I outgrew the Jesus movement is about the best way to put it. But one of the things is that I I remember... um, coming to the conclusion at the college that to just say praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord some of our songs were basically that had no biblical precedent to it in the Bible you praise the Lord because of who God is or you praise the Lord because of what God has done and most of the songs are are, uh, acts of worship praise God for both of those things so there's content to praise in biblical worship, we come to thank the Lord for all that he has done for us in Christ. So we manifest our oneness in the salvation of Christ. We hear and receive God's word together. We praise his name and give thanks for all his goodness, especially our salvation. And then number five, actually, verse five actually mentions another purpose. Uh, for thrones are set there for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Here's a a purpose to gather together as the church, church government and church discipline, so that Christ's kingship is recognized in the here and now. As priest, he died for my sins. He offered himself up for my sins. 
as prophet, he's given me the Holy Spirit and the word of God to hear his voice. And as king, he rules over me. And he says here, we come up to uh, Zion for thrones are set there, the thrones of the house of David. Thrones were set in Jerusalem. There was the national court with the king and the federal judges. There was an ecclesiastical court with the high priest and his associates. Uh, The king and the civil rulers heard what we would think of as more earthly civil cases. (coughs) Excuse me. And um, the high priest and his associates would hear in regard to more of spiritual uh, questions. Uh, But particularly he speaks here of the thrones of the house of David, the king and those who assisted him in ruling and judging Israel. You know, they had they had the elders at the gate in each city and town. And then they, uh, we find that there were also elders that represented whole tribes so that elders from the various tribes would come. And then, if you study God's law carefully, um, you have the Sanhedrin, see what we call later the Sanhedrin, the 70, which is really 72, six from each tribe, but kind of rounded it off. Um, the 70 that was like the Supreme Court. And, uh, you know, you see here this fact that that it's not micromanaging, but there is the need for leaders to help us stay true and on track uh, with the Lord and his word. The elders in the local church guide the church with God's word. Um, they use the word rule in the epistle to the Hebrews. Several times he talks about those who rule over you as the church. And they discipline when there is a serious departure from the truth and holiness of life. Uh, let me just explain. You're, a, you're an independent church, and I have pastored both independent churches and Presbyterianism. What happens in Presbyterianism is that you, the, um, there are representative elders and pastors from each congregation that gather a certain number of times in the year and deal with matters that of what I call of larger than local import. So if your pastor begins to preach something kind of odd, you have, you, you have a presbytery, this regional body, that you can bring that to and say, this doesn't sound like what we were taught when we first heard the gospel. And you have a, you know, uh, someone who can deal, help you deal with that situation. And uh, that's very parallel to Old Testament Israel and how it was set up politically. But, and I love this because in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, in our, uh, we have a, 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 a document, a secondary standard um, called the um, Form of Government. And the very first chapter is Jesus Christ is the only king and head of the church. You know, that's where we start. You know, we have our local sessions, we have our presbytery, we have our general assembly of the, you know, national body represented. But where does it start? Jesus Christ is the only king and head of the church. The son of David, ruling supremely. 
And so we should love the church for all of this, our being able to take a public stand together for Christ, our hearing God's word proclaimed and being called uh, to gospel faith, our praising him together on the Lord's day, and the guidance we receive by the government and discipline Christ has appointed in his church in the Holy Scriptures. And I hope that our hearts are in tune with Christ in such a way that all of this is true for us. And then verses 6 through 9, prayer for and striving after the good of Christ's church then. We get all this benefit from gathering together. Here's what we owe. Um, I'll try to move more quickly here. Verses 6 through 9, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Peace be upon your walls. Prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brethren and companions, I will now say, Peace be within you. Because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. That is the good of Jerusalem. We're commanded in verse 6 to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. To pray for and desire the spiritual prosperity of those who love Jerusalem. That is, in David's day, those who love the holy nation, the chosen nation, um, loved the capital, which was Jerusalem, that not only represented the nation, but also represented by, because of the presence of the temple in that city, represented the covenant that uh, the nation had with God. And uh, so... Uh, to love the capital uh, showed a desire that we would love God's nation, God's people, and God's word and desire to see it prosper. Today, those that love Jesus Christ and show it by loving his people, the church, and loving his word, by desiring that the preaching and public ordinances would prosper spiritually. Do you pray for and sincerely seek after the spiritual good of your church and of your fellow members of the church? And I think you do. I think you do pray for one another as a congregation. Pray for the preaching of the gospel. Pray that God would bring in people to hear the gospel being preached. You have the gospel preached here faithfully, and you have in the whole history of this Congregation, It's not a super long history compared to some, but that's what you've had preached here from the beginning. And you need to pray for that preaching. I was shocked when I was first a young man in the ministry when I ran across church members who thought that if things weren't going well for the church, it had to be that the pastor just wasn't good enough. And yes, pastors can be defective, you know, but... See, their attitude was not, I need to pray that God will work mightily and use the preaching of the word. It was that if we get a good enough man in here, if we got Billy Graham in here, this would all turn around right now. So we need to go out and find us a young Billy Graham and, and take care of this. The Holy Spirit wasn't really part of the equation for them. They would have said it was, but in practice it really wasn't. And I realized that when I realized they thought I ought to be able to go like that and everything in the church would be fixed. And what I did is, you know, challenge them to come to hear God's word themselves, but to pray for me in my preparation of the messages and uh, to pray for me while I did preach. And so that's something that's very critical that we pray for one another and pray for the ministry of the church. 
Verse 7, there's a benediction here, a blessing. Peace be within your walls, prosperity within your palaces. A blessing sought after the peace and prosperity of the church. David desires peace within the walls of Jerusalem, prosperity within the palaces of the city. That is, that there may be peace and unity within the city and prosperity as David rules over his people. So today we should desire peace and prosperity for the church, that we would be at peace with God and his word, peace with one another in Christian love and unity, and so know the blessing of God richly upon us so that we prosper for eternity. By the way, in our Reformed churches, um, often part of the vow you, vows you take to become an ordained minister is that, uh, I, I, I wish I'd looked this up so I could quote it for you, but it's along this line, will you be willing to suffer whatever it takes for the peace and purity of the Church of Christ? In other words, this, you know, this isn't just about us becoming this church with perfect doctrine and all the others are wrong and we're right and you know, being exalted and feeling like we're the, the superstars in, the, in Christendom. This is about really desiring the peace and prosperity and unity of God's people to the glory of God. Verse 8, we pray for the good of the members of the church who are our companions We are to desire the benediction of peace for the church. For the sake, he says, in verse 8, of my brethren and companions, those who are my fellow Israelites. Even even in David's day, there were some believing Gentiles, like the Gittites, who were basically um, a military unit that got behind David and later became uh, some of his bodyguards. Uh, And they professed, they professed, you know, Jehovah God. They supported David in his rule. So in the church we have our fellow members, our brothers in Christ, companions in Christ, and we support and help one another in many ways, including comfort, encouragement, warning, and reproof. We desire peace or unity in doctrine, in life, in worship, in love and service. And this too is part of why the church is so important to us and how we show how important we are to one another in Christ. Finally, verse 9, because this is the house of God, we seek the good of the church. In David's day, the temple was in Jerusalem. So we, uh, so to seek the, the good of Jerusalem is really for the spiritually minded citizens of Israel about seeking the good of the temple, desiring that biblical worship for them in that Old Testament form would be continued and prosper, that revealed religion would prosper desiring the good of the city and of the temple. So the church of Jesus Christ in the new covenant is the temple of the Holy Spirit, 1 Peter 2, 5, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, 1 Corinthians 3, uh, and 2 Corinthians 6. It's quite a prominent theme in the New Testament. And so we seek the good of Christ in his kingdom by seeking the good of the church. To seek... To build up and support Christ's church is to seek the glory of God, the glory of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We love the church because the church is in Christ. So by loving the church, we are loving Christ and loving the Holy Trinity in Christ. So in conclusion, true Christians unite with the visible church as they are able. Since the church is Christ's church, 
And to love his people is to love him. To stand with his people is to stand with him. We love being with God's people. We love taking our public stand together for Christ. We love gathering with his people to hear his word and worship him together. We love the government and discipline of his people that is such an important tool in purifying us as believers. We love and desire the good of God's people, the prosperity and peace of God's people. God's people in the New Testament, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the heavenly Jerusalem, the spiritual Israel. In the New Testament, this is the church of Jesus Christ. And again, not just the church invisible. I'm thankful for the doctrine of the invisible church. The whole idol, the whole elect of all time that we're connected to when we are in Christ. But we're talking here especially about the church in its concrete, local, visible form. Do you love the church? And do you love gathering with the church?